Bridge Bank helps breakthrough ideas actually break through and remains dedicated to providing financial solutions to the risk takers, the game changers, and the disruptors. Bridge Bank, a division of Western Alliance Bank. Bridge Bank, be bold, venture wisely. Hey, it's Glenn Washington from Snap Judgment. And if you love what you're hearing, and I know you love what you're hearing, please consider becoming a KQED member. Get special access to cool events, behind-the-scenes footage, and so much more. Plus, you'll sleep better at night knowing you did your part for the community you depend upon. It's in you. Please be in it. Visit donate.kqed.org slash podcasts to sign up now. That's podcast with an S. Thanks. From KQED. And welcome to Forum. I'm Michael Krasny. People across the Bay Area took to the streets over the weekend to celebrate the election of Joe Biden and Oakland native Kamala Harris. How are you reacting to the news? You can give us a call now. 866-733-6786 is the number for your calls. Again, that's toll-free, 866-733-6786 if you'd like to tell us how you're reacting to the news. And you can also get in touch with us on Twitter and Facebook. We're at KQED Forum. Or email any questions you may have to forum at kqed.org. And joining us now to preview of Biden-Harris administration is New Yorker journalist Evan Osnos, who is staff writer for The New Yorker, author of a new biography, Joe Biden, The Life, The Run, and What Matters Now. And welcome, Evan Osnos. Thanks, Michael. Great to be with you. Good to be actually back with you. We've not been on the air in a long time, but we were together at a fundraiser, and uh, it was a memorable one, your father and you, uh, yeah. helping the good cause of education. And uh, congratulations on the book. I think really the place to begin with you is to talk about how this, for many, was the right candidate at the right time, not only because of a kind of centrist view, but also being able to do things across the aisle, as was pretty much a hallmark of his work as a senator. And uh, there's a, there was a lot of baggage and a lot of gaffes, but many people, I think, rallied to him because they saw him and your portrait of him, in my own sense of him, is a, a man who's decent and had empathy and believes in a pluralistic, undivided nation. Yeah, it's it's so interesting to look at a life as as kind of richly complex as his and realize, you know, we tend to reduce our public figures to a couple of bullet points, you know, two or three ideas that we keep in our minds. And one of the reasons why I, I thought that this really was the time for a book on Joe Biden was because he has, by any definition, just an extraordinary story of change along the way and of involvement in all kinds of issues. And let's not pretend it was simple or easy or full of successes at every turn. It was full of tragedy. It was full of mistakes, regrets, as he would describe them in some cases. And, you know, I will tell you that at that, that to your core point about this kind of fundamental belief in the idea of government as a, as a forum for cooperation, not for division. That is essential to how he sees the world. It goes all the way back to the fact that we sometimes forget that along the way he has had these moments. And we'll go back into his history, I'm sure, today. But I think to give you just one example, when he came in in 2009 as Barack Obama's vice president, he was asked by President Obama to do a couple of things. And one of the things was that he led the lobbying effort to try to persuade then Pennsylvania Senator Arlen Specter to change parties from Republican to Democrat. That was a Joe Biden project. The other thing that he, and it worked, the other thing that he did was he was asked to go out and try to rally up some votes for this incredibly important stimulus program. 
And he called six people who we'd known in one form or another forever. And he got three votes and the bill passed by three votes. So even at this moment of, I mean, look, 2009 was not exactly the halcyon days of politics. It was pretty divided. It's even more divided now. But his basic belief is that you could have a fight on Monday about substance and you can still find a way to cooperate on Tuesday. It's a kind of pragmatism, really, which is about as indigenous philosophically as we get with American philosophy. Uh, I was struck, in fact, uh, by your quoting Ted Kaufman, who's been a close advisor of his and friend of his for many years, saying he's the luckiest of men as well as the unluckiest. And I think it's important mm. to get into that personal history that you just alluded to before, because it's so compelling and many of us know it. Uh, the grief and suffering that he went through, especially in 1972, when his wife and child were killed in a car crash and his son, mm -hmm. Bo, dying uh, years later in 2015 uh, of glioblastoma, brain uh, cancer. It's, it's an extraordinary story, uh, but it goes back even farther than that in terms of uh, understanding the narrative. Uh, it goes back to a stutter that he said, he, you say in the book, he was never entirely was able to shed that insecurity, but I think it shaped him, didn't it? It made him, he still it remembers did. classmates who made fun of him, for example. Yeah. Yeah, it was quite striking to me. You know, I spoke to him about the stutter and kind of thought that this would be one of those moments in an interview uh, or a series of interviews in which the person lapses into a kind of fixed routine in their mind. And that's not it at all. I could just see in his face that this is very much how he still sees himself as somebody. His nickname, as he said to me when he was a kid in school, was Joe Impedimenta because he couldn't speak. He, he was, had an impediment, and particularly in Latin class. It was grueling. And the fact that he broke the back of it, basically by memorizing Irish poetry and reciting the Declaration of Independence in front of the mirror, you know, part of that is, became part of his organizing mission. I mean, the, the reason why he became a public figure was because he had this experience of having essentially willed himself from one kind of life into a different life, in which all of a sudden he discovered he was actually a pretty charismatic speaker, that that became essential. But the more important fact was that he has ever since then kind of walked around with this awareness of who in the room feels vulnerable, who feels fragile, who feels weak. I mean, he looks out in a crowd and he can, he, one of the things he does is he just, he can scan a crowd and see who in that room is going to come up to him and say, I had something like you experienced my, I lost my spouse or I lost a child or I stutter. I mean, we all saw that moment in the convention when that boy from New Hampshire came up and I've been hearing about him throughout the campaign. <clears throat> he had come to these events and Biden had just kind of enveloped this boy's father and, and, and uh, Braden himself and had, given him his cell phone number and said, come to any event you want. Just come and watch me speak. Just come and do it. And you saw the results. I just think, look, to be at the risk of sounding sappy about it, we are at a moment in this country. Uh, there's nothing sappy about this. It's a cruel fact. We are a grieving people. We are a people in mourning right now. And to have somebody who is personally acquainted with suffering is more than an incidental fact. It's the beginning of how we start to reconstitute our politics with any decency. Also, too, as you're intimating, and I think suggesting uh, someone who has an extraordinary capacity for empathy. We're talking with mm -hmm. Evan Kaz Osnos, who is staff writer for The New Yorker and author of Joe Biden, The Life, The Run, and What Matters Now. And much of what matters now in many people's minds is, is healing, as you suggested. And uh, this is uh, someone who came to run for this position. Um, 
first of all, I didn't know that he would be <laughs> vice presidential pick for Barack Obama, but came to run for this largely because of not only the inspiration of his son, Bo, who told him to find purpose, but also because of what he saw in Charlottesville and the division that he saw in this country and people marching under Nazi flags and Ku Klux Klan symbols and the like, saying that's not America. And he wanted to essentially prove in many ways and continues to want to prove that that's not America. Yeah. Yeah, I have to tell you, Michael, I think the, the moment in, in writing this book that stays with me most distinctly was when I was talking to when I was talking to now President-elect Biden about this was over the summer. It was in quarantine. He was at his house. We're sitting across the room from each other in, in these masks you know, as thick as I could find. Um, and, you know, I asked him, what did you learn from the from the killing of George Floyd? And he said, <clears throat> he said, you know, <clears throat> I had been telling myself a parable, a kind of fable. And he'd been telling it publicly for years, which was that he grew up in segregated Wilmington, Delaware. And then, of course, he grows up and he becomes the vice president to the first African-American president. And therein, he says, you know, was this great arc of history. Right. And it was this convenient narrative. And he says what I realized looking at that video and looking into the faces of those men in, Char in Charlottesville was that I was wrong, that actually you can't extinguish hate. You can you can beat it back and it will hide under the rocks and wait for a leader to give it oxygen. And that's what this president has done. And I, there was something extraordinary in the recognition, A, of his own reckoning with the kind of convenient narrative of American history that was no longer uh, persuasive. And B, of course, his deep belief that words matter. Words at the top set the moral culture of our, of our communities and uh, and he was you know, he got into this race essentially to try to turn the tide of that history. He also got into the race to a great extent because of uh, Senator Jim Clyburn of South Carolina, who became his booster and became his advocate to a great extent. And I, yeah. heard, I heard Senator Clyburn saying, well, it's uh, essentially it's uh, the black rank and file people who really helped him uh, across the line. And I'm certain there's a lot of truth to that, particularly in terms of people like mm -hmm. Stacey Abrams and other African-Americans and people of color who work for him. But his choice of Kamala Harris, and, uh, you know, this is a kind of mixed picture, too, that we, uh, not so mixed in terms of recent history, but you go back uh, to um, Senator Biden's background, he kind of exaggerated some of his civil rights involvement. Uh, he said that right. he was going to South Africa to essentially meet with Nelson Mandela. There have been, I mean, compared to President Trump, these things are very minor uh, in, in terms of exaggeration or, or the like. But he has forged ties with mm -hmm. particularly the black community, unlike I, any, any president I can remember with the possible exception of Bill Clinton and maybe John Kennedy. Yeah, it's a really interesting element of his story because it's one of the ways in which you see this big change in his life. Because, you know, when he, when he was coming up in the Senate, you know, he gets to be a first-term senator. It's 1973. He represents Delaware, which is literally suspended between the North and the South. I mean, it's closer to New York City than it is to Raleigh, North Carolina, but it had Jim Crow in place. So, I mean, in literal terms, the African diplomats who were driving between Washington and New York would drive through Delaware and would get to segregated rest stops. So he's representing this place as a senator that is uh, that has elements of both. And he would get beat up on the left when 
uh, he wasn't progressive enough. And then he would get beat up on the right when he wasn't conservative enough. In fact, at one point, he received an award from a progressive organization for being on the right side of civil rights and on the right side of, of the war in, uh, in Vietnam. And he said, this is going to be a real problem for me because it'll make me look more progressive than I am. So he was constantly balancing. And then, of course, his life changes over the course of that career. And he kind of changes with the country. And I think you know, as Jim Clyburn said to me when I was reporting out this book, he said, look, we know we know Joe Biden as the loyal servant for the first black president. And it is so important to us to understand that and to know where his heart is. And I think, you, you know, you as somebody else, William Cornell Brooks said to me, Cornell William Brooks, I should say, was a great civil rights activist, former head of the NAACP, who's from South Carolina, was explaining to me, he said, look, in, you have to remember that in our state, the very same time that Donald Trump announced his candidacy for president, a madman walked into a church, a racist who opened fire on people in prayer. He said, for us, these two facts are intertwined, and you, you cannot expect people to have anything but an unapologetic pragmatism about who we think is really going to represent our interests. And that's why Joe Biden was the right person for us. And I, I think that's if you're beginning to understand the story of you know, how it happened, you have to start there. I, I want to also just mention briefly something about this. He has he definitely exaggerated his role at points in the civil rights movement. It was kind of he started lapsing into this uh, idea. You would say, you know, I marched and later he apologized for it. There was a moment in when he went back to Selma on the anniversary of the uh, crossing of the Edmund Pettus Bridge, when he said he kind of broke away from his script it's a few years ago. He said, look, I, I got to be honest here. I. I played a bit part, if anything, in, in civil rights, and, and I should have been here. I should have been here at this bridge, and I'm sorry. I apologize. It was a mistake. And I think there's an element of him kind of over the course of his life settling into the awareness of ways in which he was a bystander to history in which he could have done more um, that is uh, relatively unusual at the highest ranks of politics, I think. Well, he's certainly been capable of change or, you know, to what Barack Obama said when he uh, decided to come out in favor of same-sex marriage, of evolving. Uh, I think that's been a hallmark in many ways uh, of his career. But when you mentioned the pull from the left and the pull from the right, prompts me to ask you about, uh, since you've done such good investigative work here and in digging uh, into, uh, in a deep way, not only the, the uh, former vice president and president-elect's career, but also the kind of person we're talking about, and you give a good multidimensional profile of someone who keeps reinventing himself and someone who, above all, is decent and a man of faith and a man of kindness. Uh, and those things are very important to many Americans. Um, but I, I want to get to the perception that's been put out by his opposition, and particularly in the recent uh, election, of someone who's going to be pulled over farther to the left by Bernie Sanders or by Elizabeth Warren or by AOC and the squad. This is someone who, let us not forget, has said he is against defunding the police. He is against Medicare for all. He is okay with fracking and he's not a socialist. So right. what I'm really getting at here is what yeah. do you see in terms of his being pulled more to the left or being compromised uh, from being somewhat of a centrist throughout his career? You know, it's a, it is a sort of irony that this that this political figure who has been um, kind of relentlessly centrist and moderate over the course of his career was now being was being accused by the right of being a kind of crypto socialist. I think, you know, my socialist friends laughed out loud because they would say how, in, you know, we wish. I mean, the funny thing is, of course, he is going to be as much pressured from the left as he is from the right. I think uh, 
there is, and so he should be. You know, I spoke to President Obama over the summer for this book, and I, I about Biden, and I said, "How do you think he'll? How do you think the progressive end of the party will will deal with a Biden presidency?" And he said, "I think they'll start to lobby him and pressure him from day one, and so they should. That's how our system's supposed to work." Um, and they should not give up. They should keep pushing, but they should also recognize that just because he may not agree with them on everything doesn't mean that they should chuck him overboard and seek to undermine him because he is trying to do the hard work of politics to get things achieved. And I'll give you an example. I mean, I had a really perceptive conversation with uh, just a, a really smart progressive activist named uh, Varshini Prakash, who's one of the co-founders of the Sunrise Movement, which is, after all, a very active climate change organization um, led mostly by young people. And she said, you know, I did not start this race as a Joe Biden fan. Let's not pretend I did. Uh, but she eventually found she was invited to join these these task forces after he had secured the nomination. And she joined the task force and found that she was actually, as she said, I was listened to a lot more than I thought I would. Uh, I did not expect him to embrace the Green New Deal, and he did not. Um, but the goal for me now as a progressive is to find, as she put it, a middle path between being complacent and being righteous. That the goal now is to move from that period of being in protest to being in policy, to being in power, and figuring out how to advance things as fast as they can. But the idea that he's going to be taken over by the left after 48 years in in this, you know, in politics in which he was um, alert to those boundaries and, and those differences is a kind of, frankly, I think it's a fantasy. Well, one of the things that he's put forward already is a coronavirus task force. I mean, we've got the former Surgeon General on that. We've got a couple of local people who uh, Bay Area recognizes, uh, David Kessler and Eric Goosley, uh, both of UCSF. Uh, and he's named uh, likely uh, chief of staff is Ron Klain. All of this, and particularly I want to bring in the name of Rick Bright here, uh, yeah. vaccine official uh, who was a whistleblower on the Trump administration and who essentially was relieved of his uh, of his duties uh, and moved downward because of that. Uh, so things are starting to come into perspective here. And what's coming into perspective particularly is this is a president who's saying, I stand behind science. Yeah, fundamentally. I mean, that's been one of the strongest impressions I've gotten from his team. I've been talking to them over the course of the last few months is just this incredible seriousness and and the gravity of this. I mean, Ron Klain, uh, as we all know, was uh, the Ebola czar. He just knows this stuff in his bones. And I first came to know him when he was working on those issues. And I think there is a there is a from their perspective, nothing else is possible until they get COVID under control. Absolutely everything else is secondary. And so there is this really overwhelming focus on that. And, you know, the politics will be what they are. Uh, but from their perspective, those are those are separate silos. And I think Joe Biden said to me at one point, President-elect Biden, I should say, said over the summer uh, when we were talking about this, that he's like, I worry about what we're going to be left with at the end of this, because I think that the patterns that we've seen so far from the president's inability to acknowledge the gravity of this and to just acknowledge the basic science is going to be devastating. And I yeah, think I mentioned Ted Kaufman before, who's heading his transition team. He said, uh, we're going uh, to a Washington where the cupboard is pretty bare and uh, there's been a lot of profligate spending and we can take up all that. But I want to know what your thoughts are and certainly what your reaction is to 
the presidency, the likely presidency of uh, the president-elect Joe Biden. You can join us now, and I invite you to do that. Our toll-free number is available, and please feel free to be part of the program. Call us at 866-733-6786. That's 866-733-6786. Or get in touch on Twitter and Facebook. We're at KQED Forum, or email us, forum at kqed.org. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. This is Forum. I'm Michael Krasny. We're talking with Evan Osno, staff writer for The New Yorker and author of Joe Biden, The Life, The Run, and What Matters Now. And if uh, you would like to lend your voice to this discussion or bring your voice in, I should say, if you have something you'd like to say about the election of Joe Biden and Kamala Harris, we'd like to hear from you. Or if you have questions for Evan Osnos, as I said, has dug deep into the life and uh, certainly the ideas of Joe Biden, please feel free to be part of the program. You can give us a call now. Toll-free number is 866-733-6786. That number again for your calls, 866-733-6786. You can also get in touch on Twitter and Facebook. We're at KQED Forum or email. Any questions or comments you may have to forum at kqed.org. And let me read a couple of emails that are coming in. Stephen writes, I imagine it's very satisfying for both Biden and Obama that it was Obama's vice president who was able to defeat Trump, given Trump's personal animosity toward Obama and his administration. And Francis writes, as president, Joe Biden should try to undo the damage he has done with his votes for the Iraq war, mass incarceration policies and massive student and health care debt. Uh, Evan, you agree with that characterization and some thoughts perhaps from you on it? Well, I think, I mean, that, that's, caller's not wrong. Those are areas in which I think Joe Biden has uh, expressed in some cases real regret. You know, he says, obviously, about the vote for the war in Iraq, it was a catastrophe. You know, he would say that he didn't think that he was voting for exactly what happened, of course. Um, but I think what you see in sort of functional terms, like how is he actually trying to undo that damage? Well, you see in the case of student debt that he has adopted elements of both Elizabeth Warren's policies on bankruptcy and elements of Bernie Sanders's view of college uh, tuition support. So he's not uh, endorsing them, embracing every element there. I mean, frankly, that would be disingenuous. It's not what he believes. But when he sees ways to undo things in the past that were that were destructive, he's willing to do it. That's the thing that I'm struck by is that there's not a whole lot of he doesn't have these kinds of cognitive barriers against acknowledging mistakes, which we see so often from Know, what we have seen for the last four years. And, um, and I think he, he, you know, in one case, he talked to me about a mistake that he feels like he made in the Senate back in the 90s when they were voting on some rules to try to limit the growth of CEO pay. And he says, you know, we tried these technical interventions and it was just a complete failure and it was a big mistake and obviously didn't work. And he, has a, he now has a plan about how they're trying to address that. Well, he's already been characterized as uh, moving right off toward executive 
uh, orders as well as administrative action uh, with student debt and with lower drug prices and with strengthening workers' rights. There's all cutting emissions. There's been you know a whole range of things that have come up that people are anticipating or expecting. But as you said earlier, I think the first order of business here is to try to do something about this terrible plague that we're in. Let me bring a caller on. Stephen joins us. Stephen, welcome. You're on the air. Hi. Uh, I just I, I gladly voted for. Uh, President-elect Biden and, and Vice President-elect Harris, because I think they're decent, honest, capable human beings. And that's what we read, need right now. We need people that understand the power of compromise, and we need it desperately in our, in our country right now. And I think that they're the right people to lead us. Um, and at the end, he reminds me of my dad, a decent, respectable kind, loving person. That's why I voted for him. Well, thank you, Stephen, for the call. And I think one can hardly in any way dismiss or reduce the notion of Joe Biden's kindness. Uh, he managed to really forge relationships with many people who were very much opposed, uh, at least politically, to him and to his yeah. party. Yeah. And, you know, it, it is really meaningful politically. I know we sometimes dismiss that stuff but I'll give you some really practical demonstrations of that. One of the reasons that Bernie Sanders endorsed Joe Biden as fast as he did after this primary, and Bernie said as much himself, he said, look, I will be honest here. I had a better personal relationship with Joe Biden than I did with Hillary Clinton. He just has always been open to listening to me, as he said. I, they, he, the man just listens to me. And I, I, I have to say the one moment in this process of, 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 of writing the book that really kind of drove this home was... I, I met a guy named Mohammed Kazaz out in Michigan who had COVID. And at one point, he got a phone call from Joe Biden. I mean, it was almost literally at random because basically the campaign was trying to put Biden on the phone with real people every day. And Kazaz, uh, he recorded the call and he played it for me. It wasn't the campaign that recorded it or played it. It was, it was Mohammed himself. And it was, a, you know, he, here he is. He's holed up in his house. He's quarantined from, from his kids. He's trying to prevent his wife from getting sick. And he's, his daughter is sitting outside the door. She's two years old. And she's saying, Baba, open the door. Why won't you open the door? And he breaks down in tears as he's talking to Joe Biden on the phone. And I hear Biden say to him, look, I can't pretend to know exactly the pain you're going through. But I can tell you in my life, I've been through pain that my children couldn't understand at the time. And here are a couple of things that helped. And then he talked to Kazaza. We talked to Muhammad about how he might talk to his two-year-old. And I talked to Muhammad later about it. I said, how did that how did that land with you? And he said, look, honestly, just having somebody who was hearing my pain meant a huge amount. I think there's real power there. A listener writes, I'm happy to not only see Trump leaving, but to have a moderate taking office. Biden will really need to govern from the center in order to get anything done. Independents and moderates that didn't vote in 2016 turned out in droves and have a right to see their views and concerns acted upon. And Moran writes, I'm curious to hear more about Biden's plans on transforming and saving our K-12 education system and what role can Dr. Biden play? Dr. Biden being, of course, Jill Biden, his educator wife. Some thoughts from you on that, Evan? You know, I think um, she, Jill Biden is an essential piece of that puzzle. Uh, she has played a big role in his life. I can't speak to what her policy role would be, uh, but I can tell you that you know, he doesn't make a decision without her playing a pretty important role in it. Um, you know, most importantly, one of the moments that, that she talked to me about was when he was approached with the idea of being vice president. And he said, I don't think I want to do that. 
uh, because he said, can anybody even name Abraham Lincoln's vice president? He thought it was a meaningless <laughs> office. And, you know, and he said to her, he said, look, honestly, I don't know if I can have a boss. I've been a senator for 36 years. I've never had a boss. Do I really want to be somebody's number two? And she said, look, you know, you have spent your life trying to do things like end this war in Iraq. Uh, that's been a, that was one of his focuses in 2008, having voted for it, of course. But, uh, and she said, you, you've spent, you know, part of your life trying to advance the cause of civil rights here, and you're being given a chance to do this, and you're going to say no. And he says, yeah, but how am I going to get through being number two? And she says, grow up. So, you know, I think, uh, you know, if you wonder about whether Jill Biden has influence on her husband, I think just listen to that story. Oh, there's also a story in your book about him saying even as a kid that he wanted to be president. And uh, let me bring another caller on here. Amy joins us from San Jose. Amy, good morning. Yes. Hi. I just want to let everyone know that, you know, I'm so glad Biden and um, Harris will be the next president and vice president of the United States. We need truth. Uh, we need science. We need to, you know, really confront this COVID um, and climate change, especially in California. That's where I'm from. So I'm just excited and, to be honest, very relieved that we have decency and democracy back. Amy, good to hear from you. And I think that's a word we keep hearing about Joe Biden is his decency. But I want to also mention He's very good natured. He's got good set points. I mean, when you think about and you write about it in the book about what he went through, not only with all the personal tragedies that we've talked about, but also they were doing last rites for him with a brain aneurysm that he had. Yeah. Uh, he thought it was really the end of the line. Yeah, he you know, he, we sometimes overlook that because his political biography is so uh, significant. But he had, uh, in 1988, shortly after leaving the presidential race, he had a pair of aneurysms, the ballooning of two arteries in his brain, that were so severe that they really did not even think they had time to wait to deliver last rites until his wife could be by his side. And uh, they, this is shortly after he'd, been, after he'd dropped out of the 87 political race. And a surgeon said to him at one point, you know, you're a you're a lucky man. And he's he's thinking to himself, how in God's name am I a lucky man? And he said, well, if you had still been in the presidential race, you might still be trooping around New Hampshire and you might not have actually been uh, treated as fast as, as you needed to be. And you might not have survived. And that right there is a kind of pattern. And I think it's a humbling pattern. Joe Biden talks about it himself that he believes that the fates have kind of shown him the limits of the, how much any of us really are the authors of our life story, any of our successes and any of our struggles are in, to some degree outside of our control. And policy needs to recognize that. It find that balance between giving us the tools to which we can actually, you know, try to improve our lives, but also recognize that we are not uh, ultimately in control of everything. And, and, and we need to have a system that helps people in moments like that. Well, I said before, he is indeed a person of faith uh, and uh, the second Catholic to hold the highest office in the land. Uh, he just went to Mass again this Sunday, and he goes to church regularly. I think uh, we haven't seen much church going on uh, mm -hmm. President Trump's part. He did hold up that Bible in front of St. John's Episcopal, but uh, let me get another caller on here. Ken joins us. Ken, welcome. Hey, good morning. Uh, I think, uh, or I hope, Biden will not be a guy who appoints people to run important things like the Department of Education or the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau, who literally undermine <laughs> the charter of these groups and student loan uh, debt dwarfs all others in this country. And if the United States is serious 
about competing on the world stage, we should put uh, education and debt service and forgiveness on the same level we do as people who buy houses for investment or to live in. Well, Ken, I thank you for that call. And Evan, I alluded to it before. I'd like your thoughts about uh, the likelihood of uh, cancellation of student debt. It seems uh, certainly something that Senator Sanders has been pushing hard for, as well as Senator Warren. Well, I can tell you that you know, Biden has a kind of personal appreciation of that issue. As I mean, he is actually literally personally still paying off the college and law school debt of his late son, Bo, $120,000 in debt. Now, I can't tell you that's going to translate into total loan forgiveness, um, but I think there is this is not an issue that is abstract to him. And, uh, you know, we'll have to see what they actually come up with. But I, I think, you know, as, a, as, a, as an organizing principle, you just have to recognize that you know, they have he and his team have been steeped in these issues in a very real way. And they didn't get to this point in history by being immune to those facts on the ground. Comment from a listener named Merrily who writes, what does this election mean to me? Hope has replaced fear and despair. And here's Don from Auburn. Don, welcome. Thanks very much. I appreciate uh, the fact that we have a new president and vice president. And during his reception speech, uh, President-elect Biden suggested that he has a mandate for change. And I would agree with that. But I think he needs to keep in mind that the primary changes that need to be made are in regards to building bridges and building alliances. For decades, we've lived as a separated country. And this election clearly identifies us as a divided country. He needs to do what it takes to bring us together not based on politics or party, but upon people and what we need as a nation. And that doesn't mean giving away the store uh, during his uh, time as president. I hope he realizes that. Don, I thank you for that call. He certainly has talked about restoring the soul of America, and the restoration has to do with the slogan of building back better. But here's a comment uh, right on top of what Don had to say um, from a listener. Let me get your response, Evan. Uh, what can Biden do to change the imbalances in our system where he had to win by nearly five million votes to just squeak into the presidency? Well, I th and I will say just to second Don's point, I think you hear a really profound truth in that, which is that and you heard this in his uh, in his uh, victory speech the other night, which is to say that polarization Let's not have any illusions. It is a brutal fact of where we are. But his point is, it is as much a choice to decide that it is permanent as it is to say, no, no, we're going to undertake the hard work of actually beginning to unwind this state of affairs, that we are, we're going to say no to the idea that we are enemies. And, you know, he, he said in his remarks, we're not enemies. That is a, an echo of Lincoln's first inaugural. I mean, this is as core to who we are as a country. And I should say, and the, you know, the bleak fact is, and we're at a moment right now where we're making a choice as a political culture between the power of persuasion and the power of raw force, the power of, you know, violence in our language and, of course, violence in our streets, if that's, in fact, what the uh, folks who uh, carry guns to rallies in support of Donald Trump uh, end up doing. I don't think that's an abstract or hyperbolic, you know, fear. And 
that's really what this is about, is about recommitting ourselves to the idea that politics is a forum fundamentally of reason and of, um, and of meeting rather than of division. And that is more fundamental than any policy dispute. And we have another caller joining us. Elizabeth, welcome. You're on the air. Hello. Um, my name's Elizabeth, and I'm from Mill Valley, but I grew up in Wilmington, Delaware. And I have a really wonderful memory of Joe Biden. Um, he came to our second grade class to speak with us about government and about the presidency. And I remember him um, turning directly to me and looking at me and saying, yes, and anyone can be president, even a woman. And he gave that wonderful smile. And I am just um, so thrilled to um, see him as president-elect. It's a great story to conclude with. Uh, and. Uh, Evan Asnos, really good to have you with us. I appreciate your being with us. And again, congratulations on the book. Thanks, Michael. It's great to be with you, especially on a week like this. Lots to talk about. Indeed. And Evan Asnos, again, a staff writer for The New Yorker, author of Joe Biden, The Life, The Run, and What Matters Now. Um, just a couple more comments to read. Mike says, um, wants to know about uh, the outrageous anger and uh, undemocratic tactics. Uh, how can we reconcile? It's a big question, Mike, and I thank you for that. Uh, how do we get to those disappointed and disillusioned Trump supporters uh, in terms of unity? We'll leave that question hanging because I want to conclude this morning's broadcast with a personal note. In just about three months, I'll be marking my 28th anniversary as, the, as host of Forum. And today, I want to tell you that show on February 15th, 2021, will be my last. I'll be retiring. I want to spend more time with family, which now includes my first grandchild in New York, and to continue writing and to focus as well on other opportunities. I'll soon be fully retired from teaching at San Francisco State, where, as many of you know, I have been a professor of literature since the 1970s. So the time has come for me to move on from two wonderful and gratifying careers. And I'm grateful for a long career here at KQED, which has allowed me to serve you, the public, in ways that I deeply hope have been valuable and elevating. Education and civil discourse have been my lodestars, and I have indeed been most fortunate to have had an audience that has kept me challenged and inspired, and I've been equally fortunate to have a talented and peerless team of colleagues. I look forward to working with them to help build the next chapter of this program, which I love. And I'll continue hosting the 9 a.m. hour, except for some time off, until the day after Valentine's Day when I officially leave my post. So by concluding here this morning, I can simply say to you, uh, stay informed, stay engaged, and stay committed to meaningful change. We're opening a new transition phase in terms of our country, and uh, let's continue onward and upward. I'm Michael Krasny, and I simply want to say once again, thank you.
Funds for the production of Forum are provided by the members of KQED Public Radio and the Germanicos Foundation and the Generosity Foundation. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. All over the country, we need to improve reading in Wisconsin. Schools are changing the way they teach reading. I'm calling for a renewed focus on literacy. We have gotten this wrong in New York and all across the nation. And it's happening because of a podcast. I think your podcast has changed my life. And I'm going to share this podcast with everyone I meet. Sold a Story investigates how teaching kids to read went wrong. New episodes of Sold a Story are available now.